0: If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's
1: rights are human rights once and for all. Apart from the smoking and the drinking and the vulgar mother and the verbal diarrhea. I
0: like Mm. you very much, just as you are.
1: I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman
0: the message is simple it's time to bring
1: about fundamental change
0: hi and welcome back to barely getting by the long 1990s. So in our previous installment, we had, I think, probably too much fun talking about Jane Austen adaptations. Um, So much fun, in fact, that we decided to continue the conversation. So we we hope you'll stay with us for it. Um, Chloe mentioned in the last installment that she wanted to talk about Bridget Jones's diary. And I have to confess, yet again, I seem to do this a lot, that I have neither read nor watched the film. Um, I don't know why. I Look, I suspect it was probably because I was focused, and still am, focused on the United States and, at that particular time, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but we might leave that for another episode. So, Chloe, tell me why it is we are talking about Bridget Jones.
1: Well, and I've got to confess that this probably shows that I'm way too deep into this because I thought it was common knowledge that Bridget Jones is a very loose adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice.
0: Yeah, no, I didn't know that.
1: Okay, so Bridget Jones, Helen Fielding, the author, of Brid- author and creator of Bridget Jones, she started writing a newspaper column in 1995. This is in, in one of the big British dailies about Bridget Jones who is a a young woman in her early 30s who's single and it's about her travails and the London dating scene basically. She then took those columns as the basis for a novel which Bridget Jones's Diary which was then which was released it then had a sequel and the original book the original novel was made into a film in 2001. But yeah, that novel is based on Pride and Prejudice. It takes the basic story, which I told you about in the last instalment, about Elizabeth Bennet, who is this very clever, very witty young woman, and her, her, her basically her romance with Mister Darcy, who is, and translates it to 1990s London. Okay, and and am I, I'm right in thinking Mister
0: Darcy appears again as Colin Firth. I've got that yes. mixed up.
1: Yes. <laughs> so it is this incre. It's like it's a hilariously convoluted story because. Mr Darcy in the novel was very sorry okay so there's Mr Darcy in Pride and Prejudice there's Mark Darcy in Bridget Jones's diary oh right she
0: didn't even rename him it's that unsubtle
1: no 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 so he's Mark Darcy and he is explicitly based on not only on Mr Darcy from Pride and Prejudice but Colin Firth as Mr Darcy in the 1995 BBC adaptation Uh, who is uh, played
0: by Colin Firth right
1: Yes, yes. And apparently Colin Firth, he signed on to the movie because he was intrigued by the possibility of playing a character who was based on his characterization of another character in the original novel. Wow.
0: Okay. I'm already in too deep, (laughs) Chloe.
1: Yeah, uh, look, so am I. I. I just realized how complex that was when I tried to explain it. (laughs) <laughs> okay. okay. Sorry. I'm gonna lose it. But in <laughs> essence, they're the same character. Okay. So we have we have Broody Handsome Mister Darcy in the 1995 BBC adaptation. Broody Handsome Mister Darcy in the in Bridget Jones's Diary and in the film adaptation of Bridget Jones's Diary, both played by Colin Firth, and they are both iter- iterations of the um, slightly grumpier Mister Darcy of the original novel.
0: Right. Okay. So it's a very kind of British masculinity, shall we say.
1: It is. It's kind of a model of British left liberal masculine rectitude, and, and as I said, broodiness. Um, there's an interesting story, which is apparently not true, but I think it's still I think it's still worth exploring. That Mark Darcy of Bridget Jones's Diary, he was based on Keir Starmer, who is now the leader of the Labour Party in the UK. So Keir Starmer had made his name as a crusading human rights lawyer in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, Apparently this isn't true. Uh, That's what all the good sources are saying. But I think it's something that's worth noting because it's kind of, it says something about this, I think, the British Liberal Commentariat's fascination with these, you know, very articulate, upstanding men who look good in a suit and have great haircuts and how easily that's kind of substituted in for you know political ability and political authority because i would say that Keir Starmer his his time at the top of the labor party first under Jeremy Corbyn and now in his own right as the leader has not been not been distinguished by that much except his ability to argue in the in the house of commons
0: okay so that the immediate connection that i make there is to our earlier conversation about Bill and Hillary Clinton, because you're talking about, you know, pretty smart men, but who are just kind of, I don't know, made out to be something more than they are and by virtue of just being men kind of reach heights that, you know, otherwise would be unobtainable to them. And so, so I guess my question is, is, does Bridget Jones kind of fit into that mould of the 90s woman who is extremely smart but is kind of captured by male-dominated spaces?
1: Well, I think that that's I would say that the only signi- the really significant difference between Bridget Jones's diary as a novel and as a film and Pride and Prejudice is that Bridget Jones isn't actually Lizzie Bennett like. So, you know, I said in, I said in our last instalment that we're kind of set up to really admire and, ident- and you know, project ourselves onto Lizzie Bennet in the 95 version of Pride and Prejudice because she's smarter than everyone else around her, whereas Bridget Jones is meant to be a much more, I guess, kind of immediately relatable heroine because she actually, she stuffs up a lot. Like, she makes, she makes an absolute fool of herself half the time, so you are kind of at one level left wondering how on earth, you know, she how on earth she gets together with this very distinguished, like, classy human rights lawyer. Um but at the same time, in the context of, in the in the context of the novel, it definitely works.
0: Okay, so so Bridget Jones then is a is a bit different. She's not a Cher from Clueless or a Hillary Clinton type figure.
1: No, no. And I think that this is where Bridget Jones's diary stands out Precisely because it's departing from the model that most people were, the playbook that most people were taking for their Austen adaptations. Because she's, she's not asking for emulation, but she's actually skewering a bunch of preoccupations in the press at the time. So you know she is exactly not a role model for women who are constantly, constantly being told to stop smoking, stop drinking, lose weight, and that's how that's how you'll you'll get married and and find happiness. She kind of becomes a an avatar and a hero for ordinary single women.
0: I realised that when I met you at the turkey curry buffet that I was unforgivably rude and wearing a reindeer jumper that my mother had given me the day before. But the thing is, um, what I'm trying to say very inarticulately is that, um, in fact, perhaps despite appearances... I like you.
1: Very much. Uh, Apart from the smoking, and the drinking, and the vulgar mother, and the verbal diarrhea. No, I like you very much.
0: Just as you are. Okay, so if she's ordinary in terms of our discussion of class, in the kind of 90s understanding of ordinary, does that mean she's, she's not rich? That's how she's different from these other women characters?
1: She's, well, she's solidly middle class. And, but again, that's something that, you know, there's a, there's a distinction, and this is really played up in the movie. There's a difference between her, you know, sort of solid middle classness and Mr. and Mark Darcy, who is, you know, who's clearly much wealthier than she is. But again, as in all things in Blaise Britain, we're told that that in the end of, at the end of the day doesn't really matter. So we're not talking about a, a, a society that is sort of high bound to class in the way that it was in Austen's time, or indeed, I would argue, it is in some ways today. Okay, so it's like it's
0: not radical that she's marrying up. Yeah, not at all. Okay, and and do you think it's it's important as well though that as much as she's kind of middle class and not um, not at the same level of as Mark Darcy, is it important that as a character she doesn't actually, she doesn't have to worry about money? Like none of these women have to worry about money in the adaptations that we're talking about.
1: I. I think it, I think it really says something to watch Bridget Jones today and just think how how ridiculous her situation is because you know, and I think it was aspirational at best watching the movie, imagining Bridget Jones who you know is on a publisher's wage, living alone in a muse house in London in two thousand and one. Um, I think it's absolutely it's. Beyond absurd to watch that today. So I think you know, in a way, tracking Bridget Jones through you know the novel and then the film adaptation and then revisiting it today, it kind of it's a it's a sort of a register of perhaps the decline of the modern middle class into the precariat that we know today. So you know, I mean, there's Bridget Jones loses her job halfway through the novel and halfway through halfway through the film, but she has no trouble finding another job. In the media, and in fact, getting a better job. That's something that is quite, I think, unimaginable to precariously employed, tertiary educated white women today, and it's something that they feel very aggrieved about. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, just you saying that brought to mind another um, show that we might talk about and which Bridget Jones, of course, brought to my mind, which is Sex and the City, because you have a very similar situation where you have a woman, a a white middle class woman writing like a weekly comment column and managing to to live very comfortably in a lovely apartment in New York (laughs) off this one column, like, and she's wearing Manolo Blahnik shoes and, and things like that. So I think you're right that that's a really interesting cultural shift today because we just we just can't imagine a scenario like that it's totally unbelievable
1: i think it also says something about what what we ask of culture because i don't you know and you think about but you also have to think about this in terms of the target audience of of these these books and these films which is really in this case middle england so middle class liberal people like us you know, in the nineteen nineties we weren't asking big questions about class and about about economies, so they weren't really reflected in the concerns of novels like this.
0: Okay, but from what from what you've told me in in this instalment and especially the previous one, Jane Austen herself, the author that all of this stems from, was writing about class.
1: Absolutely. Jane Austen's books are social satires. They are all about class. What she her genius was that she is incredibly detailed and insightful about the internal dynamics of the British landed aristocracy at the beginning of the 19th century, at a point in the very early development of industrial capitalism, where you also saw this rising urban middle class. I'm sorry for the boring Marxist lecture here. Um And that's why I said in the previous instalment that the problems facing her heroines are primarily economic. They're not romantic. So if we think about the 1995 Pride and Prejudice adaptation, there's a character in there who's basically Elizabeth Bennet's best friend, Charlotte Lucas. She makes a decision about halfway halfway through the TV series to marry Mr. Collins, who's frankly an idiot. In the adaptation, we're kind of en- encouraged to feel sorry for her and to think that that was a stupid decision in some way, whereas in the book it comes across as an incredibly pragmatic and I think quite an admirable thing to do. She's a woman who is reasoning with her situation and she's choosing to marry for the sake of financial security, not for love, and that's the right thing for her to do. Yeah, which is, which is kind of unimaginable
0: in, in 1990s romanticism. That's not something to yeah. do.
1: Yeah, with the, with the notable exception, um, and this is I have to say this is actually my favourite Austen adaptation of all time, but I think we're probably not going to talk about it because it's not so illustrative of what we're talk- of the dynamics we're talking about, and that's um, Emma Thompson's the, she wrote the script for a version of Sense and Sensibility that came out I think in 1996, and she's quite clear about the I guess the the economic imperative for women to marry and to marry well in a way that the other adaptations aren't.
0: Okay so so Emma Thompson's script writing then is that kind of closer to the original of Austen because it it's giving that kind of class and and wealth context?
1: Well, you know what, in a in a sense I think that Emma Thompson's script does more to give that context than Jane Austen ever did. Um I'm this, you know this is very much a sort of provisional thought on the fly, but Emma Thompson Emma Thompson's sense and sensibility sets that up sets up that whole dynamic really well. Whereas Jane Austen, what she was doing was really looking at at the the lives of the of the landed aristocracy from the inside. So it's a really limited social world. Like you don't really you have no sense of there being a world of politics or a world of labour outside of, you know, this handful of country families who she's writing about. But at the same time you do because you are so invested in the dynamics of these social these social groups and the, and in the, these particular characters, you do have a sense of that. What I called that sort of economic imperative to marry.
0: Okay, is that why do you think that maybe you know people don't take Austen as seriously as they would uh, other contemporary writers because she's not talking about the kind of grand politics of the era?
1: I think you know what I have to say. I this used to come up a lot, and I think. The people who say that are fewer and fewer in number. Jane Austen, for, she is an immensely well-regarded novelist, and she was a well-regarded novelist in her own time. Um, I mean, I think that is that is nonsense. It is you know, these this is writing. It's Jane Austen stands on her own. She doesn't actually have to stand. You know, her writing doesn't have to stand up on terms set out for her by other people's cultural preferences.
0: But I mean, do you do you think that there's still something in the criticism of Austen? Because as you say, she kind of makes politics invisible. She also makes labour invisible, and and in the time that she's writing, that means
1: empire isn't addressed in any way. I think um, I think that that is it's a really interesting, I guess, kind of a fault line in how we understand Jane Austen. And I think also more generally what we want to ask art to do, like I've said that Jane Austen stands on her own, but that's not to say, and, and I think I think it's the, the wrong way of putting the question is to say Jane Austen should have dealt with Empire explicitly. I think that we have to consider how, how the work that she did do actually fits into that social context. There is a whole debate about Jane Austen and empire. The eminent the eminent scholar Edward Said wrote a lot about Jane Austen and her silences and her evasions on the question of empire and specifically her silence on plantations and the slave trade. So we have good reason to believe that Jane Austen was personally, she personally disproved of the slave trade, but this isn't 100% clear in any of her books. Mansfield Park is the only book that deals in any way, and even then very obliquely, with the question of slaveholding. And what Edward Said did was he pointed to Jane Austen's silence on the question of empire and the question of the slave trade. And what he argues is that this shows how the world of the English gentility, it can't be reconciled to the fact that much of its wealth derives from slavery. And what I would say to that is, you know, that's actually what this is. It's not a a way of talking about Austen that is, you know, castigating Jane Austen for not writing about empire. It's a way of actually appropriating her books to ask important questions to the present. And I think that's also a question that cannot be asked enough enough I'm not sure if we well, I think we we spoke about the legacy of slavery in the UK in a in recent installment of the podcast there's an extraordinary project that has been ongoing in the UK for several years now which is the legacy legacies of British slave ownership project I think it's out of the University College London and what that's been drawing attention to is the the fact that there are still families in Britain who have and continue to benefit from the reparations for, from reparation payments that were made to former slave owners after the abolition of slavery in the early 19th century.
0: Yeah, that is an extraordinary project. And I, I think you're right, because, you know, we are still, well, Britain is still grappling with this question where it's not polite to ask where the money came from. And that, as you say, you know, that's not Jane Austen's fault you know she's not responsible for that she is reflecting a a much deeper um i guess trend in in white upper class british society where you don't talk about these things because as you say you cannot reconcile the enslavement
1: of people with gentility and i think that that's That's why I want to keep this an open question about Jane Austen. I mean, I'm not a big fan of trying to, you know, constantly going on a constant search for authorial intention, but I think it is actually open whether what those, you know, it's an open question, what those silences and evasions on the issue of empire and the issue of slavery, what they actually mean. And that's something that's actually open to the reader and is open, I think, also to people who adapt Jane Austen's works to film and television today. So, you know, another view on Jane Austen and that relative silence on questions of slavery is that actually what she, because, you know, in in these, these novels that are really closely interrogating the, you know it's basically a trade in marriage is that there's kind of a parallel to be drawn between the way that you know families barter off their daughters into good marriages that promise economic security and the the dynamics of the slave trade like i think that there are there are not infinite there are a lot of readings of austen available and just because she was just because she was quiet on slavery doesn't mean that we can't do things with those texts that are productive to modern conversations
0: does Do any adaptations deal with those issues?
1: Yeah. So Mansfield Park, which I mentioned is – so Mansfield Park is about a family that it is heavily implied built their wealth and literally built their house on profits from the slave trade. Um, there was a 1999 adaptation of that, which took Austen's silences and made them into an explicit issue in the context of the film. So that's what I mean when I say that you know just because Jane Austen was quiet doesn't mean that you can't still do things with her work that are useful and that really bring to light these issues that keep that continue to be repressed in cultural and historical memory.
0: And speaking of that, just just to kind of I guess wrap it up another way that i think austin and, and particularly Austen adaptations are relevant to us today because i think a lot of people have been revisiting those kind of calming escapist versions of, of austin during lockdown i've seen a lot chloe of, of quite funny tweets um and and reflections on that of people who are in lockdown finally under feeling like they understand austin's world and and particularly austin's women because you know they're bored, or you know, understanding why they needed to go on long walks and
1: and things like that. Do you?
0: What's your take on that?
1: I know, I know. I The one I keep seeing is that. And the, look, it is funny. Like there's, there's. I don't think there's any particular harm in it. Is people that keep saying that they understand Austin's world now because we have to stand two meters away from each other and we're hiding inside for months because we're scared of illness, and that's funny. But I think that um, I think that there could be. If, if I think that there's really – there is opportunity to use Austen again. And, you know, if anyone wants to pay me to write a terrible script, then they're welcome to, um, to really to reflect quite well on, you know, I guess the, our contemporary problems. I think, much as I love it, the problem of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice adaptation is that it so completely overshadows what people – the novelist that Jane Austen was in people's minds – that's it makes people think that she is a romance novelist rather than a social satirist. And, you know, I've mentioned before this sort of dawning realization for white liberal middle class women that class exists. And I think that, you know, if someone were to write an adaptation of an Austin novel today, that is the point that I would draw out. It wouldn't be the romance, it wouldn't be the, you know, brooding brooding silent dramatic heroes it would be about you know how women are you know still still and constantly facing really tough economic decisions and quite you know quite a brutal calculus when it comes to things like their personal lives because we live in a time of immense economic uncertainty. Okay well on that
0: note um, anybody who is going to commission Chloe to write an Austin adaptation can can slide into her Twitter DMs. is that right Chloe? <laughs>
1: Please don't. I'm a terrible writer.
0: (laughs) She's not. She's an extraordinary writer. Um, Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Austen adaptations in the 90s and the particularly important, I think, legacy of white women's feminism in the 90s that we are still grappling with today. get and is supported and produced by rmit university original theme music is by stuart cullen